Today's scripture reading is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Again, that's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And the word of the Lord reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, <clears throat> a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, <clears throat> I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and the doing of his word. So I tried to confess my recent sin to some Christian throughout the week, and I have not confessed yet this week, so you, my church body, get to hear my confession for this week. It's always good to start with the juicy stuff, isn't it? On Thursday morning, I woke up with an odour coming out of my heart that was not pleasant to me or God. This odour was the odour of judgmentalness. In my heart, my wife could not do anything right. People on the other side of my phone calls got it all wrong and life itself could not get life together. The problem was, I was picking up a mate from the airport who I had previously discipled and he looked to me to learn how to imitate Christ. Now, I was in a dilemma as I felt I had to be an imitator of Christ for him this day, but my heart was far from that. I was set up to be a fake, doing right for just right's sake. So this is the question that I think every Christian asks. How do we imitate Christ without being a legalist? It's a hard one, isn't it? So two, ga- two days ago, our fridge and freezer lost all motivation for life. It said its last goodbyes through groans from the compressor, and it defrosted its tears all over our kitchen floor. What do we do next? Do we fix it? Do we replace it? Well, when something is broken, the very first thing you have to do is diagnose what went wrong, right? Does it power on? Does it have cold air? Is no cold air coming out of it at all? How do we imitate Christ without being a legalist? To get to this question, you and I first need to ask a diagnostic question. 
Where are you on your joy level? Now, I'm not speaking about joy that comes from a new purchase, a new relationship, or even the joy that seems to come more readily with a particular personality. I am talking about a joy that is unwavered by the ups and downs of life. Where is this joy in you? Is this joy turned on within you? Do you have this joy coming out of you? Or is it absent? So Paul sits in prison in the last days of his ministry waiting for a Roman trial that will determine his life or death. Writing one of his final letters to the church, it is in this mindset that he keeps coming back to the simple question of joy. For Paul knows that true joy characterizes a sincere Christian. So if you have your Bibles with you, read with me. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. If you are missing joy in your life, then you are missing what Paul is about to present as a sure way not to be a legalist in your pursuit of God. Even more, I'm going to boldly suggest and raise the stakes. If you are honest with yourself this morning and you secretly say that you are actually not that excited about this whole Jesus thing or Christianity thing, or you are frustrated that you do not have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, then you are missing the point Paul is about to make. So again, sitting in his prison cell, Paul is in great concern of the church. In fact, he is so concerned about this subject that this is one of the few occasions where he resorts to name-calling to make his point. Verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. Can you think of another place in Scripture where somebody resorts to name calling and reduces somebody to an animal? Scan through your Bible knowledge. You got it? How about this one? You snakes. You brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Pretty powerful words. Paul is in good company calling the Pharisee dogs. Jesus shows the same anger as Paul does through likening them to snakes. But this is even more interesting. What Jesus and Paul have issue with is the same thing with the same people. This must be a pretty important point, wouldn't you think? Paul is suggesting here that those who require the cutting of circumcision to be a part of God's covenant people rest in the flesh and not in Jesus or the Spirit. A legalist has a void of God's joy in their life because a legalist is one who puts confidence in the flesh 
and not in Jesus or the Holy Spirit. To understand this even better, compare Paul's accusation of the Pharisees with Jesus' accusation of the Pharisees right before Jesus calls them snakes. So Jesus says in, in Matthew, he says, You are like whitewashed tombs, which look so beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of dead and everything unclean. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Deceptive serpents act righteous on the outside, but are in truth wicked on the inside. Destructive dogs mutilate the outside of the body in hopes of acting righteous through the flesh. So I have a good friend and he's asked me to use his testimony in his name whenever I can describe the gospel better. So here it is. Here's Kevin. Kevin and I were meeting in college and he was the guy who at a Christian college would hold up the Bible for the picture and like, Kevin, we're at a Christian college. I think everyone knows you're a Christian. You can just sort of put it down a little bit. He came and he's like, yeah, tell me, tell me why this did not go too wrong when we're early on meeting. Well, there was a, there was a female around campus who um, was, he felt lacking in, in the clothes department. Maybe she didn't have a big enough wardrobe or something. and He's he just not modern enough, enough, you know. So he goes and gets a Christian sermon on modesty for the females and burns it to a CD. And he goes up to her and says, I think you should... <laughs> You should listen to this <laughs> sermon on modesty. Let me tell you, there was no joy in that interaction. <laughs> when Kevin handed over a Christian CD with a Christian sermon in order to tell the girl how she should dress like a Christian in order to be an imitator of Christ, he was both deceiving himself that her clothing showed more of her heart than his generous gift showed his own heart, as well as asking her to change the outside in order to be a better Christian on the inside. This flesh-cutting Christianity has no benefit for anyone's relationship with God, making this act nothing short of forced flesh mutilation, as Paul would say. To attempt to imitate Christ on the outside of the body through either adding or subtracting from our lives without being changed on the inside of the heart is nothing short of joyless legalism. Did you hear me on that? Do you want to imitate Christ without being a legalist? Well, remove your confidence in the flesh to achieve what only God can achieve through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now let's be honest, let's be honest. We all know here that circumcision saves no one. I think we got that a long while ago. In fact, I think most of us here would say, as good reformed people, that baptism saves no one. Hey, hey got it, okay? We're, we're good, we understand this. Yet, I still find so often the management of sin through cutting cords, destroying credit cards, removing the sweet delicacies that call our name or just not 
talking to the person we have an issue with. If not removing, we add. We add confession, which is a substitute for penance. Get more involved in the church. Do more Bible studies. Perform more spiritual disciplines. Add more freedom in Christ, which strangely sometimes looks like just no moral restraints. So hear me clearly on this, as I don't want to be misunderstood. I am speaking against, because I believe Paul and Jesus are speaking against, anything, good or bad, done for God and not by God. For God is an external activity that stays on the outside and is really doing it for yourself. By God is an internal activity that comes out of us. Do you understand the distinction here? When I have what Pastor Carter calls an extended conversation with my wife, we all know what that means because he explained it very well. And if he's willing to admit it, he has with his wife, I'm willing to admit it, I have it with my wife. When we have this extended conversations, we attempt to hear each other out, followed by attempting, attempting to wholeheartedly give our apologies, and then I'll say something like this, Aubrey, are we good? Are we cool? Right? I want to get to the kissing that comes after. In adding and removing elements in our Christian lives, the temptation is to think that this addition or this subtraction will make us cool with God. We are now good with Him. In adding Christian activity, we can even deceive ourselves in comparing our efforts to the fruit that only the Holy Spirit alone can create. Forgetting that all nutrients that, get, that comes to fruit never came from any branch on the tree, but only from the root itself, God Himself. Even more, in our effort of subtracting what we know displeases God, our temptation is to compare ourselves to other Christians and say something like, well, at least I'm not doing that, so I must be cool with God. Paul predicted this comparing game, so he decides to play along, doesn't he? And then he ends with the trump card. Look with me at verse 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Alright, Paul, what you got? Paul first gives us his general credentials, that which establishes him in his local community. We know what that's about. Circumcised on the eighth day. Not the seventh, not the ninth, but as all good covenant people of God are on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. He had no mixed Samaritan blood within him and he definitely was not one of those Gentile Philistines. He was a pure-blooded Israelite. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a descendant of Benjamin, Jacob's son, who is uniquely the only son born in the land of promise. 
the son who would give Israel its first king and the tribe who would later hold within its walls both Jerusalem and therefore the temple. So after giving his general credentials, Paul gets even more vulnerable. He next gives his personal credentials. As to the law, a Pharisee. Say no more, right? Law to Pharisee is like an accountant to numbers, Santa Claus to Christmas. They just go hand in hand. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, so passionate for his cause, Paul spent his days killing all those who opposed him. You'll be glad to know I've never killed anyone for my cause. And this is where he drops the big bomb. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I would remind you here of Jesus' words in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul was found blameless to the law. Should he not enter the kingdom of heaven as the perfect imitator of God? See, if our bodies and actions were the root cause of being enemies with God, then it would make sense to go to the body repair shop, have flesh reconstructive surgery, or to look at a performance review and change up our spiritual disciplines in order to be good with God. On the contrary, however, Jesus says on Matthew, for out of the heart as you would say, heart, (laughs) comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. My God, my God, I have wiped my computer history again. I have removed the alcohol from my house. I have an eating accountability partner now. I have extended my Bible reading time. I have volunteered with the youth. I have raised my tithe. I am imitating Christ in every area I can think of. I still do not feel right. Shame is still there. I am still angry. I cannot forgive. I still feel dead inside. Can joy be found in this world, this side of death? O wretched man that I am, who will free me from this confused heart of sin? In our polished, tiresome, endless activity of self-righteous acts, we cannot be good with God. We will remain anxious, ashamed and guilty Christians who look like we imitate Christ on the outside but are in fact joyless legalists on the inside. So Paul, that is what we should not do. What should we do then to be true imitators of Christ? I'm hungry for the answer. What's the answer, Paul? Well, when Paul first encountered Jesus, Ananias prophesied over him and said these words. This is from Acts 22. 
the God of our fathers appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the voice from his mouth. For Paul, conversion occurred as soon as he glimpsed the righteous one. As simple as it sounds, to be true imitators of Christ, we must set our full gaze upon Jesus Christ. Fellow Christians, Paul says, when I was introduced to a new righteousness, a righteousness from another world other than my own, a righteousness from God that diminished all my pedigrees in one sweep, my sense of identity, my labor, my efforts, a righteousness that did not originate from myself, when I looked upon this righteous one, I, Paul, was so enwrapped with this new goodness, other than myself, the only thing I could think of, he says in verse 8, look with me, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Paul gazed upon this massive, mysterious righteousness, which is the person of Jesus Christ, every self-accomplishment, reputation, status, and effort of Paul was mere vanity in comparison. Amen? My friends, when Peter stepped out of that boat to imitate Jesus walking on the water, everything was going to plan until what happened? What was the one thing Peter changed when he started to sink? He took his eyes off of Jesus. That is when we sink, brothers and sisters. When we take our eyes off of Jesus. It is not how you do your devotions or practice your spiritual disciplines. It is not the money given, words said or actions performed that distinguishes between being a true imitator of Christ or a fake Christian putting confidence in their own efforts in order to be good with God. No, for Peter, for Paul, for the disciples, for you and for me, the distinguishing difference between the fake evil person and the true imitator of Christ is between the person who is looking at Jesus and the person who is looking to themselves for goodness and confidence. In our self-righteousness, we do not need Jesus or His righteousness, do we? Rather, we just try to use Him, use His language, use Christian speak for our own righteousness, to feel confident in ourselves. To be a Christian, therefore, all you need is need. That's why children can be Christians. They just need need. It's a beautiful thing. Essentially, Paul is saying, do you want to know what righteousness you are living in? Well, look at your heart and see where your affections lie. Do you want Christ or do you want you? Do you want His reputation or your reputation? Do you want His confidence or your confidence? To many of us, the words imitation of Christ actually means imitation of my best self that my community sees 
or imitation of my constructed idea of a good Christian that will make me fit into the Christian norm, doing just enough to fit my surroundings. True imitation of Jesus begins by receiving Jesus' offered righteousness on a daily, hourly, and minutely basis. Righteousness is God's good stuff, to put it simply. God is perfect. God is goodness. God does not just do good things. God is good as much as Susan is Susan, Frank is Frank, and Anthony is Anthony. God alone can be good. God alone can be perfection. For God alone, well, He's God. He defines goodness and perfection. Someone can dress up like Anthony, speak like Anthony, even adopt all his weird sense of humor and value systems, but nobody can be Anthony no, much, no matter how much effort, face surgery, body manipulation, knowledge obtained, time spent, or effort put into becoming him. No other physical or spiritual being can be God's perfection other than God. Do you understand that? Jesus never intended for us to strive with all our feeble efforts to do what Christ came to give his life for. Jesus is the first and primary actor in both our salvation and our sanctification. When Jesus left, he did not leave, he, did he not leave his righteous spirit with us? We are not orphans. We are not here by ourselves making it work and saying, well, a few thousand years ago Jesus did this, so I should just do this. No single person can ever be a true imitator of Christ, for the imitation of Christ is living in what Christ alone can give. But don't be fooled to think that this does not mean we are freed from effort in our Christian walk. Well, Paul is warning the church not to put confidence in your own good acts, he has already said in chapter 1, I am to live in the flesh. That means fruitful labor for me. And then in chapter 2, he exhorts the church to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Labor it out. And why are we to labor for Christ in the flesh? Why are we to work out our salvation? Because it is God who works in you, Paul says. If God is not working in you, all your labor, striving, and work is in vain. Unless God builds the house, the psalmist says, the laborers labor in vain. When we are asked to be little Christ to the world, to be Christians, we are being asked to passively receive Jesus' goodness and faith. And then we are asked to actively live out Jesus' righteousness to the world. The branch itself never offers nutrients to the fruit, but through the branch all the nutrients of the roots flow to produce life-giving fruit. You and me, we're the, we're the branch. Receive from the source. And then we give the fruit. You see, you and me get it backwards often. 
We often think that salvation begins with faith in Christ, but then rest, the rest of our Christian life is about mustering up our best goodness from within and performing, and performing for Jesus. This is what I call bootstrap theology. Like my mate who just wrote me last week, struggling with sexual identity, we will just say with him, this imitating Christ and his morals is just too hard. I ditch my faith in Christ, for I can never live up to his moralities. We can only strive so much with a heavy yoke ourselves, and then we're like, this is just too much. But strangely, Jesus says, no, my, my yoke is light, it's easy. It doesn't have to be heavy on your shoulders. You don't have to walk around with a slumped face all day. It's a beautiful, light, joyful yoke. Receive, just like a child. Oh, worn down Christian, when does the fruit ever have anything to offer to the aged tree that has seen all seasons throughout all ages of time and from which all goodness flows? What do you have to offer to God other than yourself? You don't have goodness to offer to Him other than that which He has given to you. Imitating Christ is the activity of the heart, mind, and body to pursue Jesus Christ and His offered righteousness. In verse 9 of our passage, we see that the only doorway for this reception of what Christ has to offer is faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You will never get this without faith. Imitating Christ is passive because we come to Jesus with faith, ready to receive his righteousness. But imitating Christ is active because it requires my whole life to be sacrificed in order to live in this faith. This is me at the Atlanta airport cell phone parking lot begging Jesus to become more prominent to me than the rest of my life, for I know this is the only answer to rid myself of the smell of judgmentalness. This is another friend who called me this week just to tell me that he wants to do what Christ would have him to do, but he can't do it because the anger inside of him is blinding him. He says, I just need more Jesus. Let me finish with dealing with an irony of this passage. And perhaps you've already picked up this irony, but it's this. This is very striking to me. Paul begins with stating that evil dogs are those who cut off pieces of their flesh in order to please God. But by the time Paul gets to verse 8, he says that unless we cut off everything in our life, we are not true followers of Christ. That's irony. Look with me in verse, starting in verse 8. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I hope by now that you could give an answer to this irony. You would mystically point to these words that we just read, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. 
This is the circumcision of the heart for what Paul is talking about in verse 2, performed by the Spirit and Jesus himself. Believe it or not, you and me are the biggest hindrance at looking at Jesus. It's not your spouse, even though it might feel like it. It's not your rough job or your hard circumstances. But it's your groundless hope, your manufactured identity, your temporary joys. You see, knowing this, Paul had to take all his self-striving that gave him purpose, that formed his identity, both in the community and personal identity, that which created his self-worth, produced his temporary hope and gave the illusion of joy and he had to cut it all from his life. Paul is saying, lose your grip on anything and everything that could be a substitute for what Jesus has to offer. That is what it means to follow Christ. Whatever was gained to him, he counted as loss. Paul's life was flipped upside down the moment he glimpsed Jesus Christ. Paul's life was like a ledger. In the gain column was a long list of pedigrees. In the loss column was that this Christian movement might be, root, might be true. When he stood before the righteous one, everything had to be turned upside down. He was forced to take a big red pen and cross out his most personal pedigrees in the gain column where he thought he was imitating God but instead was compelled to write in this column simply Christ and His righteousness. And in the lost column was that his past self-righteousness. Can you think of a parable that would describe what Paul is talking about here? Hint, Jesus said it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. All that he had, everything, as loss. One glimpse of this radical, otherworldly righteousness of Jesus and we know by mere contrast that we have spent our whole life creating mere rubbish. Or to use Paul's literal language, we have created manure, dung. It's actually dog dung. Put yourself in any situation possible where you look upon Jesus. And that is when you will start becoming an imitator of Christ. You show me a Christian that is so eager to receive in faith what Christ has promised to give, and I will show you a Christian who is not passive for one minute but actively working, laboring to imitate Christ's obedience to His Father, to imitate humbling themselves like Christ humbled Himself even to the point of death, and imitating Christ by resting on the hope that the Spirit brings resurrection from the dead. 
if in the use of this thing you find yourself more prone to prayer, more drawn to Christ, more in need of God's provision, then open up your schedules and make time for that thing. This may be a person, a place, a message, a study, a thought, anything that will make you look at the person of Jesus and not just mimic Jesus' life. But if in the use of something, good or bad, you are less prone to wanting Christ, less joy, less wanting His presence, you find yourself pushing against His desires, He becomes less attractive to you, then this thing should be called loss in your life and cut. Is my religious code of conduct in the way? Gone. I had to start drinking alcohol for this reason, believe it or not. I still don't like the taste, but I am drinking it, so I'm not a legalist. Is my routine Christian practices in the way? All right, we'll sit on that for a second. <laughs> so I'm not a teetotaler if you ask me for a beer and I say no. Is my routine Christian practices in the way? Gone. I was convinced at one point to shorten my prayer life because I was looking at my watch more than I was looking at Jesus. Embarrassing, right? Is my tightly formed theology a stumbling block? We've got it right. I had to become okay with some of the mysteries of God that I cannot comprehend, but the Bible says is true? Is it the illusion of freedom in Christ that gives permission for licentiousness? Like a little kid, I have to turn off repeatedly what are called safe movies because I know the sexual content makes me look at Jesus less. It's frustrating. It's embarrassing. Is it my prized track record of service, faithfulness? Is, it, is my duty in the way gone? Is it my time, money, resources, ministry, career, relationships in the way gone? Are legalists adds and subtracts on the outside in order to find confidence in their own efforts while a true imitator of Christ loses everything in order to look to Christ who brings life and joy to the heart. Amen? It's, it's effort, it's labor, and trust me, it is your best life now. It really is. You will, you will walk with a bounce in your step. Well, I feel like with a conclusion like this, there's nothing better than to do than to end in celebration prayer. Please pray with me again.